Psalm 71. Let me read it and you guys can follow along. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You have given the command to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I have been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. I've become as a wonder to many, but you are my strong refuge. Let my mouth be filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies speak against me, and those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and take him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, do not be far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. Let them be confounded and consumed who are adversaries of my life. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and your salvation all the day, for I do not know their limits. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, of yours only. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. Also, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who've done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. You shall increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. Also with the lute I will praise you, and your faithfulness, O my God. To you I will sing with the harp, O Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly... You look away for one second, you lose your place. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing to you, and my soul, which you have redeemed... My tongue also shall talk of your righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought to shame who seek my hurt. Lord Jesus, as you have led us through the Psalms these many months, and you've specially led to Psalm 71, kind of hopscotching 70, just believe that you have great things for this body. We are desperate for you. We need you. We recognize our brokenness and the idols of our culture. We see how we are being robbed, but even more, you are being robbed of love and life and worship that is due your name. And so God, we just pray for a work in our hearts that could only be attributed to the living God that you would change us and not let us be okay with the status quo or with business as usual or with just a plateaued spiritual life, but that today would be a day where you take us higher up and further in in our relationship of you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So, ministry is incredible and crazy. And just when you think that it's okay to get comfortable and just like coast a little bit, the Lord shakes things up. And uh, that's okay. 
you know, going through the word. We're just going through Psalm 72. So next week, watch it, Jeremy. Next week will be kind of our last week in Psalms for a while. Okay, I knew you were coming. So he told me the other day, like, just joking. He wants to say amen every time. Um, And then, uh, Lord willing, we'll go into Ephesians soon and continue just our walking through the word. But, you know, this week I was texturing my basement, and uh, we can start the clock back there, by the way. That'll keep me on track as I start telling stories that are obviously getting me off track. Um, Texturing uh, the basement and um, coaching soccer games and and, uh, just knowing, like, sweet, Psalm 70 is five verses. Like, easy peasy, right? You know, and... uh, and there's like one verse that's just like, ah, oh, you know, let all those who love your salvation say, God be magnified. And just like not sensing like that was what was for today. And uh, having read ahead into chapter 71, just keep, kept going there and going there. And then my heart was going there. And then, you know, by Saturday afternoon, the Lord's like, it's not 70 today. It's 71 today. And of course it's like, ah, oh, man, that's like 24 verses to like, dive into, you know, and I've, you know, and so just hitting, hitting the books and spending time before the Lord and being met, um, in an incredible way and sensing his heart for today and for our body. So we'll see more what that looks like as we go through the text. And, and so one title that, uh, I think it was Spurgeon titled this Psalm was that Psalm 71 is the prayer of the aged believer. This guy is older, gray-headed, perhaps David at the end of his life or towards the end of his life or when he's a bit more seasoned. And he's still going through trials. Those have never left him and they never will. He's still being refined by the crucible and the refiner's fire. And so even at an older age, he prays out the prayer that we have seen so many times going through the Psalms. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. When he speaks in the Psalms of putting his trust in the Lord, it means that he's taking refuge in God. And as our mind would flash to, you know, recent news articles and and, uh, TV, you know, whether it's Fox or CNN or whatever, you know, and you see the refugees coming out of Syria and their absolute fear and desperation. Friends of ours working with uh, Sudanese refugees who have fled to Germany, or Jordan rather, and, um, you know, just people that are terrified and they just, they're not at home and they're running and they need shelter and they need uh, refuge and they're refugees. And that's essentially what David is saying. I'm a refugee, even in my old age, putting my trust in you. And how shameful it is to be a refugee, having lost everything, having been booted out of your homeland, your country, you're without anything, you're sleeping under tents or tarps that are draped over tree branches or, uh, you know, you, you got nothing. And there's shame in that. And, and David says, let me never be put to shame. Let me never be humiliated. And while we see that this is the prayer of the aged believer, we're going to see in, in um, 4 and 5, and uh, 5 and 6 rather, and we're going to see in 17 and 18, that there's something tremendously powerful about a walk with Christ at a young age. And we see that there's this prayer of trust and not being ashamed. And, and I was encouraged when my concordance just took me to the life of Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, who's one of the kings of Israel and Judah that followed after the Lord. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's a rare thing to read when you're reading of the kings of Israel or Judah. He did all that his father David had done. And the the Chronicle of Kings says that he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars. These were high up places where idols were worshipped. He cut down wooden images that were graphically sexual in nature and he burned them as there were these wicked uh, worship practices to false and pagan deities. He broke in, in pieces false gods, even special things that had become false gods, like the bronze serpent that Moses had made. It was Hezekiah who crushed 
um, crushed up and broke down the bronze serpent. And it says in 2 Kings 18.5 that Hezekiah, I always laugh when I think of Hezekiah because when my mom would stub her toe, she wasn't a cussing woman, but she'd shout out, Hezekiah! I don't know where that came from. And she's going to listen to this, and so I got to just, it was great when she did that. Um, But Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And with that, he subdued, or rather it says that the Lord was with him, prospered him wherever he went. He even rebelled against the wicked king of Assyria. He didn't serve that king. He subdued the Philistines and uh, and other fortified cities. So we have this young man, 25. Now that I'm turning 35 next month, that's a young man to me. I think of 25 as a cute little kid. I know, you laugh because you're like, I think you're a cute little kid, but maybe not cute. But anyways, a young king who trusted in the Lord and did what was right. He said no to sin and yes to God. He identified the idols of his culture, even the ones that were taboo to touch, and he knocked them down and crushed them and said, we will follow the Lord God of Israel and God alone. We see later on when the king of Assyria came and besieged uh, his city that, that the, the messenger of Assyria, who was called the Rabshiki, came out to the outer walls and began to speak about how they should surrender and that don't even think to say to yourself, don't even listen to your king Hezekiah, who's going to say, let's trust in our God. He'll give us the victory because that's what all the other cities have said that we've conquered. They've trusted in this God and that God and this God. And guess what? We led them away. We slaughtered them. We plundered them and we led them away as slaves. And that's what we'll do to you if you don't surrender. If you surrender, we'll give you horses and chariots and all these things and we'll work out a deal. But if not, we'll slaughter you. Don't even think to say you'll trust in your God. And as Hezekiah heard this, and the story is a lot longer than, um, uh, than you know, as I'm going to summarize it, he received the letter from the Rebshiki, this messenger, and it says he spread it before the Lord, trusting him. And he prayed to the Lord and said, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, open your eyes, see and hear the words of King Sennacherib, who sent this reproach of the living God. He goes on to say, yeah, you know, he has beat them because those weren't real gods. Those were work of, the men, of men's hands. And, and, but Lord, we, we trust in you. You are the Lord God, you alone. And the story goes on that the Lord spoke to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah and says, here's what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria and this threat. It says, he shall not come into this city, not shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, he shall return. He'll not come to this city, says the Lord. I'll defend this city. I'll save it for my own name's sake and for my servant David's sake. Came to pass on a certain night that an angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained in Nineveh. He didn't get away, scot free. Came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adrimelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Eshredon, his son, reigned in his place. So we see Hezekiah, because I'm reading the story of Hezekiah, and I'm thinking of the Psalm of David, and I'm like, wow, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord from a young age, tearing down idols, and and he wasn't put to shame. And then as I kept reading, he's like, oh no, he's going to be put to shame. Oh no, oh, this is bad. And he starts like paying tribute to other lands to kind of keep their land safe. And and then the Assyrians come up. I'm like, oh no, what am I going to tell the church? Like, Hezekiah is going to be put to shame. Oh no. David was wrong. And then as you keep reading the story, oh no, the Lord is faithful and true. And he comes through and he fights. And Hezekiah is not put to shame. He fights for the ones 
who trust in him, who take refuge in him. It's the story of Hezekiah, a faithful king. It's the story of Josiah, who's a faithful king, that from their youth, they say no to sin, no to the idols of their day and age, and yes to God, we will trust in you. Verse 2 says, deliver me in your righteousness and cause me to escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. Speaks of pulling me out of the dangerous place. Make me safe and secure. Snatch me out, God, in your divine rescue mission. Cause me to escape, to be rescued, to be free. God, be my hero. And in this, he says, incline your ear to me, bend down to my level and listen to my whispers. I need your rescue. I need you to come and save me. And as you hear this this morning, what is it that you need to be rescued from? What is it that you need deliverance in his righteousness? You need to be caused to escape by his divine hand. You need him today to hear your prayer as you are in the assembly of the saints. You can cry out to him and he will condescend as he did in the person of Jesus Christ coming to your level to hear you, to serve you, to love you as he has done in Christ Jesus. He ends the verse with, and save me, and save me, help me. Receive me. Be victorious in my life. Save me. Such a gift to be able to study the word and just pull all the verses apart and all the words apart. And so many times in this chapter we see the salvation of God. That the psalmist would be saved. And that he would rejoice and sing of salvation. Christians, you know what I'm talking about. It is good to talk about being saved. Isn't that great? Isn't that a beautiful word? Saved. I'm going to go get a tattoo this week. <laughs> saved. One of the most beautiful joys as a Christian is hearing a friend or a loved one or a coworker or a relative say, I got saved. Have you heard that? He got saved. How splendid, how exciting. I would ask you today, have you been saved? Have you been delivered? Have you been pulled out, as Psalm 40 says, of the miry quicksand? And set up in a secure place? Has your soul been saved? Romans 10, 9 through 13 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This is we're talking about David who says, let me not be put to shame. It says the Lord is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so here we have the psalmist writing, incline your ear to my cry, condescend, come down to my cry and save me. And in the New Testament, Paul says, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he's risen from the dead, you will be saved. Now there's a lot that goes into a Christian life and fruits that show that we are saved. But when you confess and believe in these gospel truths, you will never be the same. 
He changes you as you trust in him. By his grace, he uses the conduit of your trust and shoots through it into your life to save you. Have you been saved? Are you in a miry pit today? Quicksand. And the more you move and try to get out of it, the more you go down. You know that, right? The more you try to save yourself in quicksand, the more you go down and perish. And today, stop it. Let him. Trust in him. Be a refugee. Take shelter in him. Romans 10 has the verses right before it that says that the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. I believe that as you hear this today, and the preacher is saying, are you saved? I don't even know what you're talking about, man. Or, no, I'm not saved. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you would hear his voice, believe the, door, the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart. And that if he would prompt you and move you and Man, you are just sensing that he is drawing you. You need to know right now that the word, the confession, the trust, it's in, it's near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Paul tells Timothy, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not of our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Have you been saved? Have you been called with a holy calling that's not about your works, but about his grace? The psalmist goes on to say, be my strong refuge to which I may resort continually. You've given the commandment to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Again, save me. I'm finding refuge in you. And here we see the sovereign hand of God in acts of salvation, he gives the command to save. Save me, Lord. Come and, and hear my cry, hear my prayer. Give the command. Give the command to save me. It's God's mandate that shields us. Verse 4, deliver me, O oh my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the hand of the unrighteous and cruel man. For you are my hope, verse 5, O oh Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. So here's, we assume is David writing this. Some may disagree. And he is hoping in his Lord as an old man or an older man or an aged man. He is expecting God to move in power. He has an optimistic outlook in God, in his Lord God, which in Hebrew is Adonai Yahweh, powerful name for God. Lord God, I expect great things from you. Why does he expect great things from God? Because he has a history, a life, of God always coming through strong ever since his youth. Ever since Samuel was commissioned to go and anoint a new king, a king that God didn't look at the outward appearance as man looks, but looks at the heart. And as he goes to the house of Jesse, the prophet Samuel looks at seven brothers who are all strong and mature, and yet he knows that it's none of these. And he hears that there's a young little brother, a baby brother out there in the field tending to the sheep. And says, go get him. I'm not going to sit down until he's here in front of me. And he's anointed king. And as a child, he is put into places, very strategic places, that are working out this anointing in his life. He's put in King Saul's presence, playing the harp to bring a peace over King Saul. He becomes the armor bearer. And as the little young brother, 
He's delivering bread and cheese to his brothers at the battlefield one day when he hears Saul, uh, Goliath, the Philistine, shouting out, taunting the armies. And the armies of Israel are terrified and afraid to go and fight the Philistines' champion, Goliath. And what does David say? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? Give me, I'm going out there. Oh no, you're too young, King Saul says. Hey, in my youth, I've killed bear, I've killed lion, and anything else that tries to come at my sheep. And this guy is going to be just like one of them. And as he trusts in his Lord, finds refuge against the giant, he goes, makes great steps and declarations of faith, and slays the wicked Goliath. His life is marked since his childhood of trusting in the Lord and having radical testimonies of God's powerful faithfulness from his youth. Since he was a little guy, I like how the word puts it, ruddy and good-looking. Red-headed and good-looking. Funny, even when he's recommended for the harp job, just in case you're wondering, he is ruddy and good-looking. Well, that's good. I can't have any ugly guy playing harp in front of me, so bring David in. But in the New Testament, we see a young man named Timothy in Acts chapter 16, probably 15 years old, who'd been raised up since his childhood. Paul would tell him, Timmy, you know, from, from your childhood, you've been made known, you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, 15 years old, Paul comes on his second missionary journey, meets Timothy, meets grandmother and mother Eunice and Lois, and, and Timothy gets saved, and Timothy becomes a disciple of Paul. And Paul takes Timothy on his journeys with him. And it's so exciting to see a disciple a young man called by the Lord, commissioned by the Lord, trusting in the Lord from his youth and having a powerful New Testament ministry. I read from a man named Oliver Haywood this week who lived from 1629 to about 1702. He said, remembering and acknowledging of, the remembering and acknowledging of God in youth will be a great satisfaction in old age. Oh, what joy will reflection upon youthful piety yield. Even Seneca, a heathen, could say, youth well spent is the greatest comfort of old age. He then wrote this, the great reminder of Polycarp. When Polycarp was bade to deny Christ and swear by the emperor, he answered, I have served Christ these 86 years, and not once has he injured me, and shall I now deny him? How wonderful that the old bishop of, was it Smyrna, who would suffer a bloody death and yet a miraculous encounter with the Lord in the midst of his martyrdom. A whole separate story, we just can't get into it right now. But he would say in his old age, hey, God has been faithful. He's been my trust since my youth. And how wonderful to just be prompted to memories in my study time of just my testimony of God's faithfulness in my youth. As Oliver Haywood said, he that has been the stay of my youth will be the staff of my old age. We'll rest in him when we're older because of all that he's done when we were younger. Verse six, it says, by you I've been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. And how interesting to know the God that knows the end from the beginning, who knew us from before time began, Though we may have had a doctor or a nurse and a midwife there at the operating table or there in the delivery room, there at the stirrups, bringing us out, it was really the Lord whose hand was under it all. He's the one that pulled us from our mother's womb. He upheld us from birth. 
has supported us and sustained us unflinchingly our entire life. Even before we were conscious in our life, the care of God was over us. And because of that, my praise shall be continually of you. Verse after verse in my study, talking about how the Lord is the one that fashioned us and created us and placed us in our mother's womb. And so verses 5 and 6, we have just this incredible pair in the midst of this psalm. You are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. By you I've been upheld from birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. So stirred as I was studying. As I thought of my testimony, as I thought of many of your testimonies. I mean, probably 50% of this church have the testimony that I was raised in a Christian nation, raised in a Christian home, raised going to church, raised in Sunday school, maybe raised in some sort of religious education, raised going to youth group, married in a Christian church, And I would just ask, what are you doing with that? What are you doing with that? So often we just kind of puff ourselves up that I've got this heritage and this background and I'm, I'm good and all I really need is that. And, and I just feel like the Lord would say, hey, don't even say we have Abraham as our father because Abraham is able to raise up children out of these stones right here and don't just rest like like you're good to go because you had a christian upbringing because god's able to do that out of stones he has graced you with that privilege that so many of us have experienced not everyone this is specific words for some here for a purpose and we see that it's that we would declare his praise. You have done this from my womb. Christian country, Christian home, Christian church, Christian Sunday school, Christian school, so on and so forth, so that my praise will be of you even until I am old. We are the richest nation in this world. And not just financially. Spiritually, we are so rich. We have access to preaching and teaching and fellowship. We are squandering it. And the nations that don't have it will tell you that. What are you doing with this heritage if this is you? How are you serving God? How are you using your gifts? Who are you discipling? Who are you being discipled by? Who have you preached the gospel to in the last week, in the last two weeks, in the last year? Who have you led to the mercy seat to be born again, to hear from them, I've been saved? Are you an active part of a local church? And if this is your church, you who have such a heritage... Are you an active part of it? And just moved to tears in my office last night that so many have such a beautiful heritage like David. You are my hope. You've been my God since my youth. There in the birthing room, oh Lord, you were there bringing me out, holding me up. It's a boy. I've got such great plans for him or for her. And yet we have just been distracted. We've been led astray by the idols of our day. And, and just sharing my testimony briefly today. Raised in a Christian home. Christian grandparents. Like, like love the Lord. Following Jesus. Discipling me. Going through seasons where 
there were other things I'd rather do on a Sunday than go to church and go to Sunday school. And, and just my flesh battled that. At a young age, just beckoned by the Lord, seeing my deep sinfulness, seeing my need for a Savior, and having that made very clear to me. But for me, at a young age, about freshman year of high school, that summer between eighth grade and my freshman year, just like God was so gracious to me in drawing me closer. And I don't know really what happened there, except that he just pulled me in and just held me and hugged me and showed me who he was and let me experience his power and his grace and just sensing just more, just the spirit upon my life for power to live for him, for power to love him, for power to serve him, and basically going from my middle school years of being lukewarm at best, lukewarm and loving it, as, as we've heard another preacher say, and just trying to get out of, of being at church and trying to stay home on Sundays and, and just would just rather not to, oh my goodness, I just want to be with the saints. I just want to be in the word of God. And just freshman year, just at every discipleship group I could be at, at every Bible study I could be at, just, and how can I serve? And just the Lord did that to where I began to show up early for Wednesday night youth group for, they had a prayer time, like praying over what youth group would be like that night. And I showed up and pray and I began to love prayer and then when we were done praying beforehand uh it's like man we make sure the bathrooms are clean and running the soundboard and and beginning to play the guitar and beginning to lead worship and beginning to just take my bible with me everywhere I went and reading the scriptures and knowing the lord taking my bible to school with me and what really led to this was something very beautiful that the lord was doing in the community of Corvallis there was a guy in the high school that I went to who was a junior in high school, the summer of his junior year. He was a skater. He was good looking. He was just talented. Like everything he touched turned to gold. He was also like into partying and into drugs and giving people drugs. And, and he was just known around the school as like really cool, but a little bit, you know, a little bit in trouble if he got caught. And one summer, the Lord saved him. He got saved. And he came back that summer, born again, anointed with the Holy Spirit, shows up at school with a Bible, and because God had changed him, he couldn't keep it to himself, and he had to tell all of his friends. That's the same year I showed up. And I'm seeing this kid who's like living for Jesus. And his own buddies who used to party with him and skate with him have written him off. They hate him. And he starts a Bible study in school and, and, and let him have, wouldn't let him have a classroom. So he met in what we called the humanities open area where all the kids went to and from for lunch and there were tables and we, he sat there and he, or he stood there and he preached in the humanities open area and people stood and came in and people were getting saved by the hundreds in this high school. Kids whose parents were getting divorced, the kids got saved, and then the parents got saved because of the transformative work of the gospel in the kid's life. And we're going out into the humanities open air, we're going out into the quad, we had a river going through the school, everyone ate outside, and, and my buddy, he's standing up on tables, and he's preaching the gospel, and people are yelling at him, shut up, and get out of here, and people are also coming to the Lord and getting saved and getting healed. And then families are getting saved through that. Middle schoolers, this happens in the middle school. This happens not only at our high school, but this fire spreads to Corvallis High School, to Philomath High School, and to Sandy M. Christian School, where a revival swept through the entire town. Middle schoolers, high schoolers, born again, and living Christianity, living the book of Acts, using gifts, serving one another, evangelizing, going out throughout the world and preaching the gospel. Recently, I was in an interview that my buddy's doing for his YouTube channel. I got to recount all this, and it just stirred up deep wells of heritage that I have. 
Then the next week I went to a wedding in Corvallis and my friend, my buddy Joe, who stood up in the, in the quad and would preach the gospel, I haven't seen him in probably 12 years. I haven't heard a word from him. Missed him so much. And he was at this wedding. And I just, we just embraced each other and just began to talk of what God had done in our youth. And just, like, that is not, that is so not a coincidence that we experienced God's grace in such a powerful way. And then that continued in our youth group in Corvallis through my high school years where we got together, the high schoolers got to leave school for release time to what's called Truth 101 and would be equipped for the gospel to go back into the high school in the middle of the day. And that would continue later on in my high school ministry, some pictures coming up of kids at tables and, and around the church. You know, we got together and we did what we called Truth 101. But as I moved out of Corvallis and went to Lakeview, the Lord, it was almost like as Romans says, you know, we heap burning coals upon one another's heads. In other words, we share our fire with other people. And the Lord, I had to move down to Lakeview. My dad got a job down there. And the Lord brought just this work of the spirit of revival and awakening down to this little country town of Lakeview. Where we would have meetings up in my bedroom, up above my garage, where 50 kids were there. And they would respond to the gospel. I'm getting emails, even to this day, from these kids that are like, man, that was a special, special time. But guess what, guys? It's not over. It's not over. And we don't need to try to manipulate and make something happen that happened years ago or that happened for that time and place. But God wants to awaken us and awaken our youth to something similar, to something that brings life and that brings his praise from the lips of the students in Prineville as he has done, as I've seen it in Corvallis, as he's done it in Lakeview. We have been fasting and we have been praying for God to do that in this church for years and for years. And so exciting to see that this last week, 25 high school and older middle school age kids came to the high school discipleship just getting texts from Johnny and Jess in the middle of our Wednesday night, just like, you wouldn't believe how many kids are here. It's just so exciting and just be praying. We just prayed for the church, for our youth. Maybe you have similar testimonies of what God did. I know there was a great work in the youth group here back, you know, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. You know, we are wrong to, like the, like the high school quarterback who's still living the high school quarterback years, you know, when he's 55. Just put me in, coach. It's like, what are you talking about? You know? And yet at the same time, we can look at his past faithfulness and say, Lord God, what do you want to do here? Because here we are, and you have been my hope since my youth. You have moved in power in my community, in my life, in my friend's life, and in my churches, in my youth. And Lord, here we are. We position ourselves for such an awakening here in Prineville. Forgive me as we just hop a little bit. There's a reason we read through the text earlier. Verse 9 says, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. And so this, you know, in my cases, I share, you know, this revival of my youth was on an epic scale. But Lord, now that I'm older, don't shelve me. Don't retire me. Don't put me out to pasture. Verse 10. My enemies speak against me. Those who lie in wait for my life take counsel together saying, God's forsaken him, pursue and take him. There's none to deliver him. As we age and as we get older, the enemy wants to lie to us that the Lord's done with us. And I felt like this was for those of you who would say, I never had that revival experience. I never grew up in a Christian home. Like this following Jesus stuff is like pretty new to me. And I just felt like this was for you that maybe the enemy, you just says the Lord's just saying, you just, your, your life has been wasted. Just forget about it. The Lord's forsaken you. 
The enemy is pursuing you. You feel abandoned by God. As we jump down to verse 17, there's wonderful passages. David kind of goes through this, like, trusting in the Lord, needing the Lord, remembering his youth. Needing the Lord, trusting the Lord, remembering his youth. And I feel like for today, verse 17 and 18, Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. From our youth, if that is you and that is your heritage, from your childhood, God has instructed you. He's taught you with a shepherd's crook, or he's taught you with his rod and his scepter. Maybe he's taught you through your life's trials and circumstances, just as much as he has taught you through the word of God and discipleship groups and sermons. He's taught you by your wounds and your healing so that he gives and he takes away. And through your testimony is that, I love what Kevin said once, man, I am always learning and unlearning. And I'm always willing to learn and unlearn from the Lord. He would show me what's true and right and what I've just put up that's maybe not true and not right. And from us, for us, from our youth, from our time of youth, We've been taught from the Lord. And again, my testimony is my parents teaching me and my youth pastors teaching me. And just when that was a, there was an awakening in my life, a revival in my friendships, where we just, all we wanted to do was read the Bible together. All we wanted to do was know more about Jesus together. We'd have a sleepover and we'd, through, we'd read through a whole book of the Bible or we'd just, let's read as much as we can in our sleepovers. We would just worship the Lord together. And then in high school, you know, just uh, teaching, having a Bible study in my high school and taking my Bible with me to every class that I was in. Always just, what conversations would you open up here, Lord? And in biology class, preaching the gospel to my hardened atheist biology teacher, just open doors of like preaching the gospel to where he would say, you know what? I've just come to decide that if I believe in God, I have to get rid of science and I love science more. So I just choose not to believe in God. Having these conversations in our class, having Christian math teachers who knew that I was a believer and that I was opening my mouth about Jesus and just saying, hey, as long as you're getting your work done, keep preaching in my class. And just kids coming to know the Lord through those times. You've been teaching me from my youth. And as I look out at this next generation, don't you sense that that's what God wants to do? Just as little Samuel was lent to the Lord and he would just go live at the, the tabernacle with Eli. And don't you love that story of little Samuel being like, he was a miracle baby and so the mom just said, the Lord gave me a baby, he's the Lord's. And so the little baby just, he goes and he lives at the tabernacle and so mom would come periodically and knit him a little like garment to wear during the serving and he'd have this little like, outfit that he wore as he was serving the Lord. And every time she'd come back to visit, you know, he would grow up and, and he'd get the next size. And just how the Lord desires that for our children, that we would make disciples of our kids and that we would have prayerful hearts for our youth, fasting and praying for awakenings in our youth, that they would be taught from their youth. And there's a purpose in that. We're going to see that here in verse 18. Now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. And so he's writing as, you know, um, now I'm old or I'm an adult. I'm gray-headed. I'm getting up there advanced in age. Don't forsake me. Don't abandon me, Lord. And so there's wonderful awakening and revival that God can do in, in youth, in any generation. We've seen beautiful things happen in youth. But here we see God's not done with the gray-headed. He's not done with the silver-haired fox. Those who are advanced in age. Isaiah says, you've been upheld from my womb, rather you've been upheld by me from birth, who've been carried from the womb even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. 
even to the old age. But you know, there's something wonderful about the gray-haired ones. I say that because I've got like four or five. (laughs) The Proverbs say the glory of young men is their strength. Well, listen to this. The splendor of the old men is their gray head. Spurgeon says there's something touching in the sight of hair whitened with the snows of many a winter. Leviticus tells us that we should rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. Just, to me, I just love the old people. Man, if I'm at Costco and I see an old dude, you know, I'm just like, I just want to hug you, you know? Then <laughs> the security comes, and it's a whole thing. But the gray-haired man prays, don't abandon me either, Lord. Don't forsake me. But there's a purpose. Notice the word until. All right, Lord, there's a day that you can forsake me. But it's not going to be until I have declared your strength to this generation. I was uh, throwing some cardboard away up at the Prineville garbage uh, Disposal. Prandle disposal. And uh, I was so surprised because here comes Doc Kerbo. And he buzzes by on a forklift. And he's got, you know, a big thing on the forklift. I was like, whoa, you know. There goes Doc. And kind of flagged him down. And we visited for a little while. I didn't realize he worked there. I thought he was somewhere else. And, and uh, Doc is just like, man, Sunday's message really impacted me. And he's like, and you know, I just feel like that the Lord just has me working still. Just keep working because then I'm able to keep giving. And then we just began to talk there at the forklift just about how retirement as our culture and nation has framed it. Where we work our whole life and we just make up as much money as we possibly can. And then there comes a point where it's all about me, people. And I'm just going to go live for myself. And I'm just going to spend money on myself. And I'm only going to love on my family, and I'm just, or I'm just going to check out till I die. That is like the lie from stinking Satan. I am telling you, do not drink the Kool-Aid. That is not what our aim is. That is not why we've been created. He has, by his grace, let us live through every type of traffic accident that could have happened, or cancers and poisons and global warming and whoever's going to be elected. If we make it through that, gosh, you know he's got a purpose for you. Four to eight years. And when we're there, it's not so that we can check out and live for ourselves. It is so every breath and every dime And every weekend and holiday and whatever, it's to tell of his faithfulness to this generation. In Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross, an incredible prophecy, some 30 prophecies in there of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. The end of the Psalm talks about how a posterity shall rise up. That means like a generation will rise up and they will go tell this story to the whole world that he has done this. That's you. Senior citizens, you are a generation that he has graciously allowed you to live this long so that you will go tell the world. It starts here in Prineville. And I would bet that if you would be willing, he would restore your strength And your vitality, as he did Moses, who in his hundreds had the vigor of a young man. If your mission was to be about his mission, I'm not like saying, you know, I would still bet it, but that if you felt the prompting to go do more than what you think your strength is able, he will give you the strength for it. And he'll give you the resources for it. He wants you to be useful. Grandma, grandpa, middle-aged man, we need you. 
We need you. You have so much experience. We need to learn from you. You know, Titus says that older women, man, you're to teach the younger women. There's set things that there it says. And here's a beautiful psalm that we're in that as an old gray-haired person, I need to teach this generation your power. And notice it says, to everyone who is to come. You know, the Lord led us to just pull out of having a seniors ministry in this church because we felt like it was just kind of going inward focused. Not everybody, not everything, but it was like pulling teeth to get the seniors to come be a part of core groups and 242 groups and to come be a part of, you know, and we beg them. We need you, come. Like, we don't want to be a church and we don't think it's the gospel that, you know, all the like, you know, 25 to 30 year olds, like we got our group, you know, and then, you know, you and the poor are over here and the rich are over here. And like, we're all in this together, right? And so our core groups, we got the silver head and we got the guy that has no hair. We got the guy with the faux hawk. But we are all there to learn and to grow from these experienced ones. We need the older person. And I pray that God would wake you to be a part of telling this generation of God's strength and faithfulness. And all the better if you are one who's seen it since your youth. As we have the worship team come up, I remember um, Mo, who is the Spanish-speaking pastor at Calvary Corvallis, Kind of, they have like a Spanish service, and when I first met him, he was going through marriage problems, and um, like he was like, I mean, they were just about divorced, and he just, I, I would drive him to go see his wife and, and kind of help with some of those times, and he just said, Rory, what I wouldn't give to have followed Jesus from my youth, to have known Jesus, to have been shepherded by Jesus through those life decisions and to have had the power of the Spirit to say no to sin. And the reading that I've read, it's just there's something incredibly special about those that have a testimony of God capturing them from their youth. And so in that, as we prepare to close, there's, I think, three different ways that the Lord would have us cry out to him today. And the first one is, have you been saved? Young, old, have you been saved? Has he delivered you by his grace? Have you tasted of his mercy? Have you trusted in his perfect righteousness and his work on the cross and the tomb to where his perfect life is transferred to your sinful life through the cable of your faith, through the cable of your trusting him. Now you might know that he's done all that, but until you run to him for refuge, you don't have the shelter. Have you trusted in his saving works? If you would do that today, he would put his perfection into your account and take upon himself all of your sinfulness and all of your failings. And when he puts his garment of righteousness upon you, you are what the the legal terms in the Bible say, you are justified. That is where the the holy judge of heaven who looks down from the bench and sees all of your sin and that you are clearly guilty and he's about to send you to everlasting punishment, your attorney stands up, your mediator. His name is Jesus. And he shows the judge his hands and his side and he says, hey, I got this guy. I got this guy. And the judge says, justified. And you can say, just as if I'd never sinned. 
Are you saved? Are you justified? Trust in him today. Trust in him. And as we bow our head and just in prayer...